Well, good morning. Our passage today is 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I encourage you to turn there. Let's stand as we read God's word together. 2 Samuel 6, first 15 verses there. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ayo, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ayo went before the ark And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of the error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Ezza to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David... That the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And he was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, And with the sound of the horn. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would enlighten our minds, help us to focus today, to understand what you would say to us through your word. Lord, we praise you for your holiness. We thank you that you call us to be a holy people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember as a young teenager when our family went to the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark at the theater, I had not to that point heard more than casually about the Ark of the Covenant, but here was this whole movie about the subject, and well, there was Indiana Jones, and through a series of clues, he discovered where the Ark was buried in the middle of the desert, and so he unearthed it, which then was promptly stolen by the Nazis. And then in an amazing moment, the Nazi leaders, eager to see the treasures inside the ark, opened the top. And then these ghost-like spirits came out and took their lives. And and the ending scene of the movie has the ark being placed in a crate and stored in a warehouse with thousands of other artifacts, all property of the U.S. government. And here's what I learned about the Ark of the Covenant from Hollywood. It's one of the world's most supernatural artifacts. If you're greedy and power hungry, the ark will destroy you. 
The ark is filled with spirits. And the ark can be owned by the good guys like the US government. So that's what I learned. I, I left the movie with an awe of the ark for all of the wrong reasons. And all that was focused on the unknown and the supernatural and not an awe that was based upon the holiness of God. And so we read the story about the ark being transported by David. And as I mentioned last week, the events in this chapter, in chapter 6, they occur after a lengthy civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And And David, because he's the Lord's anointed king, is victorious. And one of the first things that he had to do as Israel's new leader was to defeat the Philistines. And this passage in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel is a direct contrast with chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. As we saw in 1 Samuel, Israel is defeated and King Saul is slain. But here in chapter 6... David, obedient to the Lord, is victorious by the grace of God. So many things going well that David wants to cap off his celebration, not by setting up a monument to himself, as Saul had done in the past, but instead to bring the Ark of the Covenant home. He knew it was due to the Lord that Israel had won the battle, and so he wants to bring the Ark to the new capital city of Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 1 that David took with him 30,000 men to escort the ark. It had been kept outside of Jerusalem for 20 years. And when we started our book of the, our look at the books of Samuel, we saw this, if you remember, an initial battle against the Philistines in which the ark was captured and taken back to the cities of Philistia. And there the Philistines put the ark in one of their temples but found it only brought judgment upon their idols, upon their city and their people, and so they they sent the ark back to Israel. But it only got as far as the house of Abinadab the priest. And, And 1 Samuel 6 tells us that it stayed there under his care for two decades. And David went to bring the ark home, and before we... We go any further, I want you to look again closely at verse 2. It says, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And you may notice this long description of the ark. And you'll see what its emphasis is. It's not in the beauty of its construction. It's not in how heavy it is. It's not even in its supernatural power. Instead, the emphasis is upon God. This is the ark of God. The God whose name is the Lord of hosts. The God who sits enthroned upon the ark and its cherubim. And you you see, there was nothing supernatural about the ark itself. It was a beautiful artifact, there's no doubt about it. And Exodus 25 describes how it was a rectangular box that was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. It was certainly beautiful. It had four gold rings attached to the corner so that it could be carried by gold-covered poles that went through those rings. And inside the ark was not spirits just waiting to be let out. Instead, there were tablets of stone 
that had written upon them the Ten Commandments and then two other things. The book of Hebrews tells us that in the ark were also Aaron's rod of almond wood that once miraculously blossomed and also a jar of manna. Why those three items? Well, all three were testimonies of God's redemptive promise and power. And that's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. God had promised or covenanted to protect his people Israel. And when he brought Israel out of Egypt, he led them, fed them with manna. And then he displayed his power in making Aaron's rod blossom and blessed Israel with his law on tablets of stone. And again, nothing supernatural about those those items. They are merely testimonies of God's faithfulness to his promise. Now, what made the ark unique? As verse 2 points out, it was here where God's presence dwelt. Not in the ark, but above the ark. He is described as being enthroned on or between the outstretched wings of the sculpted cherubim that stood on top of the ark's cover. You might ask, why there? Why on the top of the ark and not in the ark? Well, if God wanted his presence physically to dwell in the midst of the Israelites, what better place could there be than above the object that represented his faithfulness. And God called the cover of that ark the mercy seat. And that was a perfect description of a place where God would mercifully interact with his people. A.W. Tozer once said that what we think about God is probably the most important thing about us. And if that's so, then this generation is probably in serious trouble. Opinion polls say that Americans are very religious, but only 10% say that their belief actually affects the way they live. And if we ask, what does the ark tell us about God? Well, what is the beauty of its construction and the implied power of the outstretched wings of the cherubim and the term mercy seat? And the fact that God requires that his people be consecrated before they even approach the ark, what do they all say about God? They all say that he is holy. And holiness means otherness. It means that God goes beyond all that we could imagine. Holiness is so fundamental to God's character that as one author says, the word holy calls attention to everything that God is. It reminds us that his love is holy love. That his justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is holy spirit. In the book of Leviticus, we learn that Aaron, the high priest of Israel, Moses' brother, had two sons who were priests, Their names were Nadab and Abihu, and Leviticus 10 tells us that they did not follow God's miraculous ways and did not obey his instructions when they gave an offering at the tabernacle. Not told how often they were disobedient or 
what they were like in their personal lives. What we are told is simply that they offered what the Bible says was profane fire and apparently did not think that that disobedience was very serious. Now, word profane means to take something from a higher level and bring it down to a lower level. And so Nadab and Abihu's offering attempted to take God from his exalted level of holiness and bring him down to their own level. Think of it like your own children purposefully disregarding your instructions on how to complete a project and their casual disobedience is a way of saying that your instructions aren't all that important and they don't have to follow them. And what happened as a result of profaning God? The Bible says that God caused the fire that they were offering to turn around and burn them up. So Nadab and Abihu die. And you can't help but ask the question, does God take seriously how we worship? Can we really be tempted to think that everyone has his own rules and serves God in their own way? Does Leviticus 10 have anything to say about that? God gave the Israelites clear directions. He told Moses and Aaron how to worship. What happens when they disregard what he says? Is it simply a matter of my will against God's? Is it, what is it? If the seriousness of a sin is weighed by the greatness of the one by whom the sin is committed, then the sin of Aaron's sons, wouldn't we say was very great? Very serious, that they were profoundly guilty? Their disobedience was an arrogance. It was an arrogance that said that their will was at least as important or more important than God's command. And so they profaned the Lord and they faced his holy justice. How do you think Aaron reacts when his sons are killed? The Bible says he was displeased. And that's probably an understatement as we attempted to translate things into English. Probably furious or in disbelief would be better, or maybe those were layers. He had, after all, dedicated his entire life to the service of God. He had been placed in this position as a result of Moses' lack of self-confidence, and he had faithfully completed the tasks asked of him, and this was the thanks that he got. God executes his son for what seemed like a minor transgression. Well, look at how God counsels him in Leviticus 10.3. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So the Lord reminds Aaron through Moses, you priests have been given a sacred task. You've been solemnly charged with the precise requirements of your office. You have the privilege of ministering before a holy God and God, he told them specifically what to do. In fact, in Exodus 
30, verse 9, God had described the altar as most holy. So when Nadab and Abihu offer what is described as strange or unauthorized fire upon it, they are acting in clear defiance of God's instructions. They did not sanctify him. They did not treat him as holy. In this most holy place and on that particular occasion, God's judgment was swift. And so we fast forward now to our passage in 2 Samuel. And here, King David sent 30,000 men to accompany home the ark of God. We would think David is recognizing God's holiness. Look at how many people he sent. And for over 20 years, this, the ark has blessed the home of Abinadab. And Abinadab has been its steward, much like Aaron. And also like Aaron, Abinadab had two sons. Guess who they were? Uzzah and Ayo. And these two men drove the new cart that had been built to take the ark to Jerusalem. And it was a festive occasion. King David and many others playing music before God, dancing with all their might, and then disaster strikes. Remember Aaron's sons. Well, look there at verse 6 and see what happened to Abinadab, son of Uzzah. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. That, that word jumps out at me, Uzzah's error. What was this error that deserved the death penalty? says he was simply trying to reach out and steady the ark from falling off the cart when the oxen stumbled. Must have stepped into a hole or some unevenness in the road. The cart started to tip. It was a logical, rational, instinctive reaction, probably one that we would have done in Uzzah's place. And we need to know Uzzah is a Kohathite. He had been given specific instructions just like Nadab Abihu were once given about how God wanted him to worship through carrying the ark. Under no conditions was anyone ever to touch the ark. That's why the poles were used through the rings. And so the irony here is that there are no poles being used because the ark is sitting on a cart which it should never have been placed in, in the first circumstance. And so, in his book titled The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul makes an insightful point about what happened there. He says, Uzzah assumed that the instructions about the ark could be ignored because the ark was about to fall onto the ground. This was not an act of heroism, Sproul writes. It was an act of arrogance. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. To me, that line is the best line in the book. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of a man. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him. It was man's touch that was forbidden. 
It's great insight. And I think those comments are true. We see the same thing with Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. God does not want his holy name or character to be contaminated by the evil of man's presumption and profanity. God is not obligated to give us the gift of life. He is not in debt to us. The gift of life comes by his grace under his divine authority and the task is given to us to bear witness to his holiness. To be his image bearers. We are made to mirror and reflect the holiness of God to be his ambassadors. And our slightest presumption is an act of defiance. The issue is not why God punishes sin or even why he punishes some and not others. The best question is why does God permit the ongoing rebellion of man, period? What prince, what king, what ruler would have so much patience with the continuously rebellious people? The Bible tells us that God is forbearing, that he stores up wrath against those who do evil. In fact, he is often so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt as it does against Uzzah in our passage, we are shocked and offended. And we forget rather quickly that God's patience is intended to lead us to repentance. It is not an a reflection of passivity. And instead of thanking him for his patience and coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use his grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sins. He's tolerant. He's more patient. He'll forgive me. And since it's our tendency to take grace for granted, it's my guess that God finds it necessary from time to time to remind his people that grace must never be assumed. Grace may be free, but it can't be assumed. And on these rare but dramatic occasions, he shows the dreadful power of justice. He killed Nadab and Abu, he kills Uzzah, he kills Ananias and Sapphira in the time of the early church. What might he do today? Are we having trouble recognizing God's holiness? Are we presuming upon his grace? And I think in our context, how many of us as we approach Sunday go, oh, Sunday, really, it's here already? I didn't get everything done that I was supposed to do. And then it's a rush to get everybody out to the car if we're going to be there in time. And, and our minds are straying back to the things that still need to be done as soon as we get home. Or it's our Bible When's the last time we took up our Bible? And how often as we're reading God's word does our minds stray and we have to go back to the previous chapter, the previous sentences, or somebody asks us, what did you just read? And, and it takes us a while to think, what did I just read? Or as we pray, we fall asleep. Or we keep repeating the same things over in vain repetition 
because we're not really thinking about the words that we say. Are those presumptions upon God's holiness? Are we failing to set God apart in a way that God commands or have we profaned his name and his character by making our own things exalted in our minds? God says on occasion, don't forget who I am. And don't forget your purpose. You represent me. Your life is sustained by me. Do not forget that I am your God and you have a purpose. And it isn't to just be consumed with your things Monday through Saturday and Sunday evening. I am holy. You must treat me as holy. The demonstration of God's holiness should have an important effect upon us. It should cause reverent fear among his people. How does David react to Uzzah's death? Verse 9 says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Wow. Nothing like the demonstration of God's holiness and justice against sin for us to realize in that moment, I am a sinful creature. How can the ark of God come to me? I'm a little afraid, says David, that if Uzzah's going to be struck down for having touched the ark when it's tipping off the cart, am I going to, is this going to affect me? And so David leaves the ark there at Obed-Edom's house for three months Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm not saying that David was necessarily right to abandon the ark. After all, I wonder what Obed-Edom thought. Did he think, great, the king is afraid of the ark? And he's just going to leave it in my house? Right? Right? 30,000 people are now walking away, just leaving this thing here. What I am saying is that David's response of holy fear was proper. And he went from treating the ark like a supernatural relic or like a mere symbol of God's blessing after victory in battle to realizing, wait a second, this represents God's holiness and his presence and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom it isn't wisdom by itself but it lays the foundation for wisdom because it puts us in the right frame of mind and when we understand our position before God that's when we become teachable that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom And that's what happened to David. When David learned that God blessed Obed-Edom's house for three months, he went back to get the ark. But notice what he did this time. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... 
He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. What was different this time? There's still festive celebration. There's still music. There's still dancing. There's still a whole bunch of people. But do you notice that David gives sacrifices? David consecrates himself, consecrates his people in an act of worship, giving burnt offering for sin before the Lord. The worst thing in the world to do is to dare to live as if there is no danger associated with disobeying God and presuming upon his grace. Think about the incident of us in the ark when you read a passage like this one from Hebrews chapter 10. It's a sobering, sobering one. It's in verse 26 of chapter 10. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We think the incident with Uzzah was serious. The author of Hebrews says, how much more? Think Uzzah trampled upon the holiness of the covenant of God when he reached down and touched the ark. How much more do we profane and bring down the holiness of God to our level and the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified when we trample underfoot the Son of God? We look with awe, you know, we watch a movie like Raiders or we we look with awe upon things like the Ark of the Covenant. We don't realize we are in a much more serious situation. The Son of God actually came and tabernacled amongst his people. And so we are called to treat him with reverence, not to presume upon that grace of God in sending Jesus. I really exhort you to have an attitude that believes how serious this calling is. God is no teddy bear. He is He's sharp and has edges and his wrath pierces and his patience has limits and his holiness consumes. And those who commit treason against this God by sinning against him and his son will have to deal with him. It will be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so God gives us these punctuated reminders throughout his word to say don't fall asleep don't become complacent I am the holy God and I like how 1 Peter 2.10 applies to all of this Peter writes you are a chosen race you are a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Remember that God's presence was described as enthroned upon the ark. It was above the mercy seat of the ark. And Peter says that we, the people of God, have obtained mercy from God through Jesus Christ. We have become his special people, a kingdom of priests. Think Nadab Abihu, think Uzzah. We have been purified by the offering and the sacrifice of Christ. And like David sanctifying the people before the ark, so God has sanctified us through his son. And we are allowed to approach the throne of God by standing in his grace. And so 1 Peter 2 describes the task that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again, like the Israelites who danced celebrated before the Lord on the return to Jerusalem, so are we to celebrate the salvation of God. I pray a holy fear for our church. I pray a right understanding of God's presence and the seriousness of what took place when, when the Son tabernacled amongst his people when he died and rose again and stands at the right hand of the Father and he will be victorious and all of his enemies will be made a footstool at his feet. I pray that we take that seriously. And may God address in his timing and in his manner any presumption amongst us. May he cause us to fear him so that we will become teachable So we will become wise people. Let us not play the hypocrite. Let us not take God for granted. Learn again who God is. And pray that he will bless this church, his people. If you're not a believer, I plead with you to turn to Christ to give yourself to him, to renounce your sin, to declare war on that rebellion and to call on the name of the Lord that you might be saved, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Trust his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his life as yours. Call on him while he may be found. There is no life apart from God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mercies to us, for the blessing of your goodwill, the giving of Jesus Christ. Lord, you are the holy and righteous God. I pray for wisdom, pray for guidance. But today is in light of what we've looked at, I pray more than anything for a recognition of your holy, 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 
character. Lord, you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.